0: Welcome back to this two-parter podcast episode of Can Marketing Save the Planet, where we were joined by the wonderful Paul Skinner. We'll pick up where we left off and also ask the big question of can you really measure purpose? We're also going to be talking dog eat dog and tennis. Enjoy. I love that whole that whole, you know, listening, finding, tuning. Editing, telling, and doing it—it's such a strong framework to to build a story, but also to go back and go—is—is is the story resonating? And Michelle and I talk a lot about, um, you know, the fact that we've become almost broadcasters as opposed to sharing stories, and then looking at, you know, are those stories resonating with people? Are they relevant? Are they relatable? And I guess this brings in that whole social context and community piece that you talk about as well and and the fact that you know the reason we are in the situation we are in today is because we are quite dis- we're, we're much more disconnected um and the stories have been very much told to us down you know one lens and, and and through our phones and social platforms and things like that and but the sharing economy is coming back isn't it and the the community mm-hmm. piece so why why are why are these bits so important when it comes to purpose?
1: Yeah, so once again, so much of my work is railing against the reductive economic view, which I think becomes ultimately self-defeating. So in economics, not only are people reduced to consumers, um, people in, within the business are reduced to resources, Mm. (laughs) but equally, there is this notion of economic markets. You know, what is the market for soft drinks? There is no market. I'd like, can I go to this market please? No, there is no such thing. Um, give one example. If you take rural villages in India, now if you looked at those as Unilever did in the past as a market, then you leave value on the table because as a market, rural villages in India were not very promising. They didn't have enough money to buy Unilever goods and you couldn't reach them with advertising because they didn't see any advertising. So a very bad market. Communities, they were very, you know, they were communities that cared about preventing yeah. infectious disease. They were communities that wanted to improve the quality of their sanitation. They were communities that trusted and knew each other. Um, and so viewed through the lens of community rather than as a reductive market, um, Unilever launched Project Shakti where they went into those communities and they enrolled uh, women in those communities, um, in, uh, exploring around their communities and taking Adapted Unilever products in different sizes um, and made um, more accessible to people in those communities in something that was, you know, maybe what we would think of as somewhat Avon style. Um, And of course, that meant they didn't need to invest in advertising. Um, They were increasing prosperity in those communities um, by enabling people to become micro entrepreneurs. Um, And they were. Uh, making a contribution to increasing um, the health of those communities. And that's now a a significant portion of um, Unilever's revenue in India. So I think fundamentally, um, a lot of um, progress can be made from unpicking the reductive assumptions of economics from which so much management thinking is a a tired derivative um, and replacing it with the very human nature, human context and human relationships, Yeah. the economic assumption of to reduce everything to a metric and then say catcher's yeah. paribus, all things being equal, assumes a way out of the picture. I think if we put that back in the picture, we have more opportunity, not less.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I remember reading a book in the nineties. I think it came out in ninety-eight or ninety-nine called The Clue Train Manifesto. And it was a revolutionary book. I mean, they talked about the end of business as usual back then and, and this was just as the emergence of digital and tech was was starting. But of course it was very, very early days. And what they talked about, as you've just said, really, is that markets are communities and conversations. And as marketers, that's all you need to know. You know, you've really got to be thinking not about sectors and market. You know, you've got to really be doing, as we talked about that listening, that that understanding what connects people uh, in their communities, what what those what that. You know that very human endeavor around conversation and and community. But coming back to that financialization of everything then and this economics aspect, what does that mean then when we come to metrics and measuring performance with regards to purpose, you know, is it possible to measure purpose? Is it even important?
1: Yeah, um so I, I would say the the first thing is, purpose ultimately is 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 going to take a narrative form so purpose as a living wholeness that adapts over time is never going to be susceptible to an individual metric and an individual metric is almost always certainly going to ultimately derail us mm-hmm. as the world changes and so the relevance of that metric is diminished and and it can give us a false confidence, a bit like a a sat-nav that is missing an upgrade and so takes us confidently and directly um, in driving into a disused quarry. Um, So uh, it's not going to be susceptible to an individual metric. Um, But if we see... Um, A business as being there to enable its stakeholders to improve their lives, whether that's their investors, their employees, their customers, their partners, the communities that we live in and work in, Um, then it makes sense to um, measure and track and even set targets. Um, First of all, Um, you know, that narrative gives uh, a purpose that all of our stakeholders can enjoy pursuing. But then secondly, we want to define measurable ways in which we can create benefits for all of those stakeholders. Mm. So conventionally, a financier might say, you know, I'm a finance director for a 50 million pound business, a 200 million pound business. That's all very well and good if you own the business, but if you don't, that's a very boring story. <laughs> so, uh, the Eden Project, for example, I mentioned earlier, they track not just their revenues; they track the value of the tourism that they bring to Cornwall as part of their mission yeah, to heard, regenerate heard, heard. The, the local communities, which I think is over 2.2 billion pounds now. Now, that's a, a very powerful way to get people on their side. Yeah. If you're yeah anywhere near Cornwall or care about Cornwall in any way, shape or form, you're going to take a a meeting with Tim to explore what you can do with the Eden project. And of course now they're expanding way beyond Cornwall. Um, I mentioned DSM earlier, um, and their uh, goal of uh, fixing the world's broken food system. Of course, they can't do that on their own, but they can make a really important contribution. So what kinds of things do they want to do? Um, they want to close the micronutrient gap of 800 million people. Yeah. They want to reach 150 million people with plant-based alternative proteins. They want to improve the livelihoods of 500 million smallholder farmers. You know, these are people whose work we massively depend upon quite literally for survival and who are often working in the most precarious conditions Mm. imaginable they want to improve the immunity um, of 500 million people they want to tackle obesity with natural alternatives to sugar they want to achieve double-digit emissions reductions on farms Um, these are purposeful um indicators that all of our stakeholders can get behind because yeah. we depend on all of those stakeholders.
2: Absolutely. And that leads us really to your first book as well, this and this this kind of um crossroads of where they where they, they kind of inter mm. interject. Um, and and this idea of of collaborative advantage. But but not just being around, you know, organizations working with other organizations, which I'm sure is part of all of that. But, but as you've said, working with their own teams, working with their suppliers, working with the communities. Um, because the collaborative advantage of all of that is to have this more purposeful, these more purposeful, more meaningful outcomes, not just for the organization, but for all of the actors that are part of that dynamic. And of course, ultimately, all of us have this vested interest in the planet, you know. So, So can we talk a little bit just about collaborative advantage versus Competitive advantage because I've seen uh, you know a number of of resources a number of narratives around sustainability. I mean, I'm researching a lot at the moment for the the book, and I'm looking into a lot of strategy, and it's all about you know sustainability can be a competitive advantage. Um, But it always irks me a little bit when I hear that because it's almost like you're missing the point. Mm. This isn't about making sustainability. You know, sustainability isn't like digital technology or, you know, digital transformation or getting a better product or or winning ahead of something. This is much more of a collective endeavour because if we do not reach certain targets, if we do not collectively work together to Change the way that we consume and behave and live, then we are risking all business. So, mm-hmm. what's your? I mean, it might sound a bit dramatic, Paul, but you know, what's your what's your view on competitive advantage versus collaborative advantage?
1: So, I, I think so. The notion of competitive advantage was perhaps unsurprisingly uh, developed entirely by financiers. And from- <laughs> yes. Um, it was in the 1960s in response to early waves of market liberalization. Um, when companies were finding that other companies were entering their markets, entering their countries from yeah. overseas, and they were losing some of their customers to these um, businesses. And so the notion of competitive advantage really had quite dry wood to um, catch flame. Um, previously, before the 1960s, we hadn't. there were very few instances of the use of the word competition in writing about business. Mm. Um, somewhere like Harvard Business School, you'd learn about policies, business policies, policies, for example, not um, competitive strategies. Um, uh, and actually, uh, even the word strategy was more reserved for things like military campaigns. And so this notion of competition arose, caught on, um, and you know, it's perhaps for that reason that the strategic consultancies that have so influenced oh. management thinking have primarily been led by financiers. Um, and still are to this day. Um, now, competitive advantage was about looking at the resources you own, manage and control, lining them up to create a superior value offering you delivered to what were conceived of as consumers. Who were there to choose you? But then their only role was to diminish the world's supply of, you know, whatever resource you happen to be pouring into them, and maybe they get to be pathetically grateful for the magnanimity of your superior value. Um, and so that was the competitive advantage um, model. And of course, there's a big shadow there because it it leaves out the fact that all of our stakeholders have their own agency. Mm. We were met in Starbucks. I'd be going there to talk to you. And the warm brown liquid would be very ancillary and incidental to that conversation, and yeah. we can think similarly about all of our our stakeholders. Um, so, really, um, I, I would say it is limited in that way. Also, the very notion of competition tends to lead us to think of um, think of business as a race, and. It, to compete with somebody essentially yeah. means race, running faster than them yeah. means doing the same thing as them yes but cheaper faster and so on yeah. um and actually um the greatest the greatest contributions are made not when we do something the same as the guy next to us but when we offer a complementary alternative that fills a missing need And so we can create collaborative advantage through differentiation because if all I'm going to do is copy you, then I'm not making a contribution to the world unless I'm, you know, if I'm copying you in another country or for a different group of people but if I'm simply replicating what you're doing then I'm you know you end up in a a race a a competitive race to the bottom and the problem with a race to the bottom is nobody wants to win it Um, so I think it is and as you say when it comes to notions of sustainability it really tears that concept of competitive yeah. advantage apart because you can hardly say I'm going to beat you by making you less sustainable than me. <laughs> it, 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 that somewhat is challenged by the kind of systems thinking that really quite specifically is needed. Yeah. To less sustainability challenges. Exactly. It relates to purpose because without purpose sustainability often ends up becoming rather technocratic you know we end up with ever more metrics and ever more ways of justifying that progress is being made but without mm. the the fundamental questions being answered you know if you were talking to an astute well-informed 14-year-old would you be able to persuade them that your the world was a better place for the existence of your business or not
2: yeah, yeah and i
0: guess that's it isn't it that whole mindset change of competitive advantage i guess is you know as it stands today it's it's no longer working because it's like pick me over them and and we also as marketers have kind of defaulted to to price as a reason to purchase so it's not even that the product's better it's it's that it's cheaper but i guess that mindset change of maybe competition within the space now is about how can i do better for the greater good and that's what drives a business. Mm. You know, it's not about me looking more sustainable than you, but it's actually we're doing more for people and planet than you are. And maybe if if business can start conjuring up some of that as in in the form of competitive advantage um, to do better um, and and see that, I guess you know, the social impact companies of the world are doing amazing things. It'd be brilliant if other organisations looked to them and said, you know what, we need to do more of that because that's what's resonating mm-hmm. with the Gen Zs and the millennials and, and yeah. the customers yeah. and the people.
2: And we're seeing some of that though, aren't we? We're seeing... Some organisations partnering with these social impact startups. You know, Unilever yeah. working with Too Good to Go, um, for example, just one example of, of, of how uh, they're resharing food uh, that would is close and products that are close to their uh, sell by dates rather than that going to waste. So, so there is that collaborative advantage from that perspective as well. These kind of unusual partnerships, Paul, um, mm-hmm. that are happening. But do you think it's realistic that? that kind of dog-eat-dog dog mentality can shift and that sustainability could be the driver for that.
1: So it depends if we see through the illusion because there's something really interesting about the phrase dog-eat-dog. Dog. Mm. Have you ever seen a dog-eat-a-dog? Dog?
2: No, I haven't, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> fortunately
1: um, no. This came up in a conversation we had with um, Ed Mayo a couple of days ago at, at Marketing Kind. He um um, sort of put the New Economics Foundation on the map. Um, he also led the Jubilee campaign that wrote off um, or ended up leading to the write-off of so much developing economy debt um, and who's now looking at the role of professional capabilities in strengthening um, the third sector. Um, so um, the reality is that that's a very powerful story, the dog eat dog world. But it's you know, it's a it's a false story. Yeah. Um, competitive advantage is a very powerful story, but it, it's no longer a story that that really works for us. Um, you know, maximizing shareholder value is a, a powerful story, and it made an awful lot of sense when the idea was introduced, but it has um a very deep shadow mm. Um, and now that story will only work against us mm. so I think you know one of the things I look at in the purpose upgrade is how do we jettison the stories that are no longer serving us because yeah. you know, once again you know science cannot tell us if there is a meaning of life um, but we can't help but live lives of meaning because that's how we understand the world around us and plan our journeys to better. And in a human world, those maps are always sus- uh, susceptible to an upgrade. Um, so how do we overcome the stories that are not working for us, which yeah. were never completely true in the first place? Yeah. And how do we replace them with a, a set of stories that that do work, at least uh, in the current context, knowing that further stories would emerge mm. um, in the future that will then seek to embrace,
0: maybe they, maybe those different stories uh, that you know the ones that the Too Good To Go's and the Tony's Chocolonies are telling become the drivers for those organisations who haven't started or are resisting starting their their journeys of change to to do better. Um, they're the kind of the drivers and the kick up the asses that they need to actually to start doing this, you know. It's almost like, and whether that comes from a base of the need to be better and the competitive advantage there, I think it's almost like that landscape change, the landscape's evolving. We know that. We know that that people want to. To embrace sustainability, but, you know, embrace a better way of living. We know we have to tackle the problems are only getting more as opposed to less. So, you know, if if competitive advantage is a thing and will remain a thing, hopefully not in its current form, hopefully it becomes they chase after a different goal, I guess, as opposed to it being perfect. So
1: we don't have to be against the sort of um, human drive for competitiveness. Exactly. So one example I give is my favourite ever tennis match I watched, which was um, uh, Andy Murray against Novak Djokovic um, when Andy was about to and and ended up being able to win his first Wimbledon title. Mm -hmm. Um, So you had the world number one, Djokovic, against the world number two, Andy Murray, at the biggest you know, the final stage of the biggest um, uh, tennis tournament in the calendar. Um, And so on the face of it, you have human competition at its most intense. Mm. Um, Then, of course, let's Kind Of pan out a little bit. So, first of all, you know, what are they doing? Is it a fight to the death? Well, I don't remember seeing that. They no. agreed the to ball. use almost identical implements to hit the same object back and forth within a carefully agreed territory and under the um, supervision of somebody whose authority they both respected. Um, if you pan out a little further, About fifteen thousand people had arrived and agreed to take their pre-allocated seats at the same time. To be really quite noisy in between moments of action, and pretty silent um, Mm. during the moments of action. And then, if you panned out further, you'd see the TV cameras, millions of people watching, connected, talking to each other um, locally, remotely through their through their devices. And so, for one intense act of um, competition, you'd see tens of thousands of acts of enabling cooperation Mm. Um, and so the sort of competitive spirit can be fun i mean paul polman's talked about setting particular targets for 2029 rather than 2030 so that they could get a bit of extra juice by feeling they were getting there a year early and so that's absolutely fine but that's not necessarily you know the value is created um through defining the games that we play Yeah. Um, uh, and so that's, that's the, that's the thing you want to get right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, as in terms of enjoying competitive spirit, you know, I can enjoy that, um, yeah. as much as anyone.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, well, I think that leads us perfectly to asking you our three final quickfire wrap up questions, Paul. Um, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast and, and, and listening to, to you explain so much of what is in your books in this much more human and conversational way not that it isn't that in that in that way in the book but it's just great to have you on here being able to ask those questions and and pick your brain so thank you so much so our three final questions then um the first question no surprise uh can marketing save the planet what's your view
1: so so the obvious point is the planet doesn't need saving. Yeah. No. There's, there's a book written by someone called Alan Wiseman, The World Without Us. If anyone wants to look at how well the planet could do without us. Um but the question is, you know, can we save humankind? Mm. Um now uh The science doesn't look good, so I think we inevitably end up being pessimistic in our analysis, but hopefully optimistic in the action that we take. Um, If there is something that can save humankind, it's changing... The stories that drive how we live and work, mm-hmm. um, and the good news is, those stories can be surprisingly malleable. In yeah. one of our exchanges, we had at Marketing Kind Ian Golden, who at the time, you know, ran the state bank for Nelson Mandela, um, reminded us that while no one would think that apartheid would be a good idea for South Africa today, uh, a majority of white people did at the time that Mandela was in prison. So our, our stories can be malleable um he also reminded us that 20% of our stories can 20% of people can change the other 80% stories exactly um, or 80% of our stories um so uh, there is reason to be optimistic if we can change our stories and then within that if marketing marketing has a particular role to play in curating the most helpful stories um and also really meaningfully and this is where it's different to the narratives of psychology, fiction and so on is that we can define the value exchanges and the value propositions Mm. um, that scaffold those stories and make them consequential. So I think that marketing has a tremendous contribution to make.
0: That We agree. And Paul, what do you hope business looks like in 10 years time?
1: So Um, I've been recently um, working through the World Economic Forum's uh, Global Risk Report that came out a few weeks ago and that is looking to the decade ahead and describes it as uncertain, um, turbulent, um, and that there is a very real risk that human development as a whole will move backwards in the next decade rather than forwards. And that our environment will be increasingly characterized by what's being called the a polycrisis, where our different crises feed into each other and mm-hmm. exacerbate each other's outcomes. And I guess um, you know, one of the things I uh, right against in the book is the idea that there is a happily ever after or a, a fixed end point. So I, I don't think business is going to have all the answers in, in no. ten, 10 years. Um But what I do hope is that we will learn to better adapt to a more crisis-prone world to better deal with the direct effects, the indirect effects and the knock-on effects of those crises to alleviate those crises and to begin to help us get out of them so that we can, you know, collectively solve with purpose more of the problems we've allowed to arise by accident. Um, And this involves new thinking styles and the purpose of grade is a contribution to that. It will involve us in learning how to foster difference psychosocial dynamics in the workplace to better address and cope with that environment Um, and while we don't know in advance how these big crises will play out um, what we can anticipate is that they will lead in surprising directions to rapid and extensive shifts in the priority needs of the people we serve and that being able to repurpose around those shifts will be the biggest opportunities for for business in in the decade to come um in the book i said perhaps the ultimate covid vaccine might come metaphorically in the form of learning from one global crisis how to better adapt to a crisis yeah. world for a yeah. more prosperous inclusive and sustainable future um and so so my hope is that that uh metaphorical vaccine will be working
2: yeah yeah Good stuff. Okay. And last, um, what one piece of advice would you give to others around their role, getting started with their purpose upgrade?
1: Okay, Um, so I think the the first thing to do in terms of getting uh, to grips with a purpose upgrade is to take your organizational hat off for a moment and to really get to grips with lasting human need. You know, in 1927, the Wall Street banker, Paul M. Mazur, wrote in the Harvard Business Review that we needed to go from a, a business culture that met needs to a business culture that met desires and maybe consumerism was born in that moment and i think the pendulum needs to swing back so i think for all of us if we take a real profound interest in human need and the kinds of stories that we can mobilize around that take the people that we serve to a better place if we root our activity in in that then we'll be in a good place there's a in in Buddhism, there's the concept of the koan, which is a a question used to sort of leverage you out of your prior story and create the space for the next one. And so, the one koan that, as you know, as it happens, um, I've been putting to leadership groups recently is, you know, what if instead of trying to create the best businesses in the world in your yeah. sectors, um, you tried instead to uh, lead the best businesses and create the best businesses for the for world, the world. Mm. Um, and so that, that. that question might be a, a good starting point
0: yeah that's brilliant well paul where can people find out more about your work the work of marketing kind for if anyone listening please go and have a look but where can they find out about that
1: So I think particularly for listeners to this podcast, they would be so massively welcome at Marketing Kind. So look us up. It's marketingkind.org. Do check out membership. Do access a complimentary month of um, membership um, and get stuck in with us. Um, People can find my books in any good bookshop or on Amazon or on Audible if people prefer to listen, at least for the purpose upgrade um and so once again purpose upgrade change your business to save the world change the world to save your business and collaborative advantage how collaboration beats competition as a strategy for success um and people can also follow me on linkedin where i try to um at least keep keep people updated with the conversations that we're all getting stuck into and the events that we're involved with through all those activities
2: fantastic well we are huge fans and big champions of all that you do and uh, we'll continue to do so and we learn something every time we speak with you paul so it's always an absolute pleasure um so thank you so much for your time we'll make sure all those links for everybody are in the show notes so you can just go there conveniently and uh, click away and make those connections and and so just a really big thank you for uh, your time paul and uh, for being with us